uh, I was reminded very much of one of the questions I get asked quite frequently as a lawyer is, can you help me with a will? And my immediate thought is that's um, sort of like asking someone who's an obstetrician to do brain surgery. I mean, you kind of learned about it a little bit in school, but it's malpractice for me. You do not want me writing your will. Uh, uh, I would wind up getting everything when you die. Your relatives would be very upset. It would not turn into a pretty scene. And so um, uh, the, uh, uh, the the whole issue of, of wills, though, brings up the question that I have for you this morning, and that is, do you ever think about death? Uh, I, I have some morbid thought process, perhaps, because I think about death. I think about death a lot. I've thought about death for decades. It's not something new to me. I think about what's it going to be like when I take that final breath. What's it going to be? What's my last thought going to be? I have a dear friend who's been close to me since middle school, still practices law with me. It's Kevin Parker. And I was asking Kevin about this. It's been at least 20 years ago. And we were driving to uh, uh, to eat. And and we were driving there, and I said, Kevin, do you ever think about, and I just assumed everybody does, what's it going to be like when you're, you know, die, de- dying, that, that transition, that moment? And he looked at me like I was an idiot, and he said, of course I don't. And I said, well, sure you do. You know, what, what, and he said, no, I don't think about that at all. I said, Kevin, I mean, just think for a moment. Just engage in this with me. What's your last final thought as a living human being? You know, what, what do you think it might going to be? He said, I don't know. If I'm going to die in a car wreck, it's probably going to be, oh, my gosh. And I said, Kevin, that, that, that's, you're just not fun to talk to about this. My question is, did Paul think about death? And I'm absolutely convinced he did. Especially when we get to this writing of 2 Timothy. The writing of 2 Timothy is one that makes most sense to us if we see it at the end of Paul's life. Now, because we've taken the hiatus from our New Testament survey for a while, I just want to remind you of what we know about Paul's life. We know more about the life of Paul than anyone else in the Bible, save perhaps, well, no, not perhaps, definitely save Jesus, and then perhaps Abraham. But I dare say we know more about Paul than we do Abraham or anyone else other than Jesus. And here's what we can put together. We know that Paul was born somewhere around 5 AD. May have been a little earlier, may have been a little later. But somewhere in that range, we know he was born in Tarsus. You can go there today. It's on the coast of of, uh, of Turkey. And near Syria, down near that border, you can see some old things that existed from the time of Paul, if you go back there. We know that Paul was born as a citizen, not just of Rome, but as a citizen of Tarsus. At an early age, while he was still schooling, he clearly went to Jerusalem, so somewhere around 10 years old. Scholars, some think it's earlier, some think, uh, not many think it's much later. He kept family in Tarsus, though, and probably went back and forth. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the top two Hebrew rabbis of his day. In fact, of the entire first century. We still have writings of Gamaliel today. He's still, Gamaliel is still recognized in Jewish circles today as one of the top two rabbis of the first century. That was Paul's tutor. That's who Paul learned under. 
Paul was a Pharisee. His parents were Pharisees. They were the most devoted uh, to, to the law and the most devoted to nationalism for Judaism of his time and his era. And it was very important. Now, on this chronology, we can also place the death of Jesus somewhere around 30 A.D. Jesus was probably born around 3 or so B.C., 3 to 4 B.C. And so Jesus would have been 10 years older than Paul. But somewhere around 30 A.D., Jesus is crucified, buried, resurrected, such that a huge chunk of Judaism confesses faith in a resurrected Jesus. This is not... You know, people who wonder about how Christianity got started need to remember, there's not really much fuss about this. It's not Jesus died, was buried, and then 20 years later or 10 years later, people started saying he was resurrected from the dead and they concocted this elaborate religion. The resurrection of the dead, of Jesus from the death, from death, was something that was immediately followed by massive numbers of Jewish people who not only proclaimed their belief that Jesus was resurrected, having eyewitnessed it or having witnessed it through another. But those same people are the ones who were immediately persecuted by Paul as well as others in an effort to stamp out immediately any of this renegade faith. But the power that the apostles had and the eyewitness testimony of, of over 500 people that we know of was so powerful that the faith continued to grow. And Paul goes to Damascus to try and stamp it out there. It's spreading past Jerusalem. And as Paul goes there, Paul himself makes a decision to believe in the resurrected Jesus because Paul encounters Jesus on that road to Damascus. That would have been somewhere around 33 AD. Paul starts teaching. Paul goes off and tries to sort through his, his learning and his training. And then Paul makes this bold decision, which historically is really profound. We sometimes forget because we live in the 21st century. But Paul makes a decision with Barnabas to go on a mission trip. That wasn't done back then. You didn't have a bunch of Roman theologians who were going to go make a mission trip to teach people about Zeus or Apollo. Jupiter, I guess, would be his Roman name. Zeus was his Greek name. Jupiter. You, 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 you didn't have... Um, a, a bunch of Egyptian missionaries to go teach about the sun god Ra. Most all of the cults and groups had beliefs that the, the gods had their limited areas of jurisdiction or control. Poseidon, he got the sea. You didn't have to go tell anybody about it. You weren't, he wasn't looking for converts. But Paul had a faith and a, an apostleship from the Greek apostolo, I send, 
Jesus, Paul was sent by Jesus, as were the other apostles, to go among the nations and tell them Jesus is Messiah who has saved the world. We're in last days. You come into a new creation and a new being and a new body as you put your faith in Jesus. This was a brand new thing. Paul goes out on a missionary trip and he goes into southern Turkey and into the churches of Galatia and he ministers there and he helps, uh, 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 becomes the tool of God and the Holy Spirit to bring people to faith and the church begins to grow. And as the church continues to grow, Paul finishes that mission trip but goes back on a second one from 49 to 52 AD. We can date these. These are pretty specific. The first one was 47 to 48. The second one's 49 to 52. And there may be some debate among scholars, but this is getting pretty solid at this point. So Paul goes on this second missionary trip, and as he's going back through the area where he had the first missionary trip, he encounters this young boy, Timothy. Timothy, born of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. The Greek father had not let Timothy be circumcised. Paul circumcises Timothy. Not because Timothy needed it to be saved. Paul makes it clear. He circumcised him because Paul wanted Timothy to be able to minister among Jews as well as Gentiles. And so with a Jewish mother, Timothy would be Jewish. Because Jewish lineage is passed on through their mothers. But as a Jewish mother, Timothy, an uncircumcised Jew, would be a renegade Jew. And he would never be able to be a Jew to Jews, as well as a Greek to Greeks, which is what Paul sought to do. So it's on this second missionary journey where Paul encounters Timothy and takes Timothy with him. So Timothy becomes Paul's son in the faith, if you will. And that second missionary journey goes for three years. Paul returns. After Paul's return, he launches into a third missionary journey from 52 to 57. And this time he goes all the way up into Europe. Crosses over the Bosphorus. Actually, he doesn't cross over the Bosphorus. He sails under the Bosphorus. But but technically, he's on the other side. He's now left Asia and he's come into Europe. That's a mind jolt for you. Do you ever think about the fact that our faith started in Asia and moved to Europe? Most of us think of this as a European thing. Crosses over into Greece and Macedonia. Continues to work, lives in Corinth for quite a while. Comes back to Israel at this point. And as he comes back to Israel, he's arrested in 57 A.D. After he's arrested, he's moved from Jerusalem to Where's Dale? Caesarea, um, Caesarea, Caesarea. You can say it. I've heard it all three ways. Anyway, he moves over to there on, on Maritima on the coast where he's put under, continued under house arrest for several years before he's shipped off to Rome. He goes to Rome. It's almost a one-year journey, but he's arrested in 57. He heads to Rome after this, and he gets to Rome around 60 A.D. where he's under guard. 
But Paul's fully expecting to get out. This is where he writes those prison epistles. This is where we get the letter to the Philippian church, where we get the letter to Philemon about the slave Onesimus. This is where we get the Colossian letter and and the Ephesian letter. And so uh, uh, Paul is there in Rome. Now, while Paul is there in Rome, he thoroughly anticipates getting out. And well, he should. Suetonius is is the one who's going to hear his case under Caesar. And Paul's already been in front of Suetonius' brother. Paul knows he's going to get out, rests confident he's going to get out, even writes Philemon and says, I'm coming soon. I'll be released from this imprisonment. Get my bedroom ready. Now, Acts ends there. So at this point, we put together Paul's narrative from his letters written later. First and Second Timothy and Titus. We also put it together from church history. And so we're able to see that after Paul's Roman imprisonment, Paul ultimately does get released somewhere around 62 to 63 AD. During that period of time, Paul goes to Crete. Paul goes to different places. Ultimately, Paul, according to church history, makes it to Spain where Paul said he wanted to go. And so Paul continues his missionary efforts. Ultimately, Paul is arrested again, and his final imprisonment in Rome is around 65 AD. If you go to the Roman catacombs and you go to Rome itself, you can find the area which is fairly reliable where Paul was imprisoned in Rome during this final imprisonment. It's now a small area of worship. It's basically underground. But you can see from some of the graffiti on the walls that it was at least seen as the uh, worship or the imprisonment place of Paul within 200 years or so of his imprisonment. And so it's it's a, 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 a place where you can actually go and see. We know Paul's imprisoned again by church history regards. And this is the one where Paul will ultimately be put to death. You see, something happened between his last release and this release. In 64 AD, for five days, fires raged in Rome. And as those fires waged in Rome... Nero was thought by many to have been the cause of the blaze. See, Nero wanted to rebuild Rome in some ways, wanted to rebuild his house, and he just wanted to do it, it turns out, in the effort that just happened to burn down. So it was ready to be rebuilt. Of course, all of the people who lived there weren't any too happy, None were the mer- neither were the merchants. And so the idea was Nero let it burn out so that he could rebuild there. We get the best historical account of this from Tacitus, and I've reproduced it in your paper, um, if you've got your paper. Tacitus was a Roman historian. He would have been about eight or nine when the fire happened in Rome. So he would have remembered it. It was the major event in Rome for the, the, the century. But in the process of writing up the histories that he did later, he said the following about this. And Tacitus, by the way, not a believer, not a Christian or anything like that by anybody's accord or knowledge. But here's what he wrote as a historian. But all human efforts did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration 
fancy word for fire, was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called, bless you, Christians by the populace. Now let's pause for a moment. We know the reasons that Christians were hated for their abominations. Christians were famous in this first century and were persecuted in this first century for two atrocious crimes. One, incest. Do you know how many brothers and sisters we have in here? If you think about it, Christianity and the church had a closed communion. It was not an open worship service in the sense of ours when they came together to break bread. It was a closed communion. And so what the reports would leak out is, they're all related. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, must be massive incest. And, oh, by the way, they're cannibals. They're eating the body and drinking the blood of some dead guy. That was the reputation that Christians had by those who were ignorant of what truly the Lord's Supper was. So Nero said, we'll blame the Christians. Christus, from whom, which that's just a Latin ending on Christ, from whom the name Christians had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful come from every part of the world and find their center and become popular. This is... People have trouble if they read history denying the historical roots of the church. I mean, this is, this is not in the Bible. This is a historian. One of the best Roman historians that we have. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Guilty not for the burn, but guilty of being Christians. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to the flames. They were burned to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero would fasten Christians on stakes and light them for his night parties. And let them be the torches. That's the atmosphere in which the church did not die. That's the atmosphere in which the church thrived. You you, kind of knock it down to the true believers when that's the penalty. So, Paul... All of that is what takes place in 64, 
if we go back to the PowerPoint. So now in 64, Rome burns. Now when Paul goes to imprisonment as a Christian, the world's a little different. And Paul is um, martyred. 65, some say late as 67, he's beheaded in Rome. So Paul in this last imprisonment, knowing he's facing his last days, knowing what life is like under Nero for a Christian, knowing that the Christians who plead guilty to being Christians are convicted and are put to death. Paul's not going to turn away from that. So Paul knows his end is near. And in this sense, he writes 2 Timothy while he's facing death. Now, when you realize that, and you read 2 Timothy with an eye, let me pause and say, some scholars don't think Paul wrote 2 Timothy. And and some marvelous Bible-believing scholars think that it came from the school of Paul or things of this nature. And I really want to have time to deal with those things. I got to get through trial before I can write that lesson. I got to be at the library to write it. Right. So you're going to have to hang on to that issue. We'll come back to it in probably six or eight weeks. But in the process of this, let me tell you something. I can't read Second Timothy without it just jumping out at me. This is being written by a man who's facing his death. I mean, it, it, it comes off of every page. It's not just once or twice. I just threw some things up where he talks about it just in the beginning. The promise of life in Christ to a man who is facing certain death is a profound statement and claim. To see his language where he talks about life and immortality in chapter 110. Where he talks about how Christ has abolished death in 110. Where he talks about those who died with Christ will, future tense, live with him. Paul is very cognizant. It's coming through in his language. It's coming through in his thoughts. He is resting in the promise of faith. That there is life in Christ when this world is over. Paul talks about his relatives that have passed on. He talks about Timothy's relatives that have passed on. He's thinking about those that have already gone before. Paul talks about Jesus as a judge of the living, but also the dead. Paul's got magnificent passages in 1.12 and 4.18. Look at these passages in Timothy, 2 Timothy. Let me put them up here for you. 2 Timothy 1.12, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Paul says in 1.12, let's see if I can magnify it. This is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to be imprisoned as a follower of Christus. I'm not ashamed, even though we're blamed for the Roman fire. I'm not ashamed, even though I'm lock and key, because I know whom I've believed. I know 
whom I've believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. I know whom I have believed. Doesn't say I know what. He's not buying into a religious system. He's buying into the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm, look, I, I, I will face death. And I will do it without shame. And I will do it with joy. Because I know Jesus. The resurrected Lord. And I'm absolutely convinced He is able to keep what I've committed to Him and what He's entrusted to me until that day. He is the faithful God, as Pastor David kept bringing out this morning from the Abraham story. He is faithful to us. And Paul was convinced. Look at 4.18. This Tell me this man's not facing his death when you read this. Four eighteen, the Lord will rescue me. Now, oh, really? You think you'll get set free from prison? No, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, even Nero's sword, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How many of you one day are going to die? Okay, most of you. All right. I want to tell you something. The Lord's going to rescue us. He's going to rescue us from death. He does not rescue us from death by giving us immortality in this life. Thank you, Lord. He puts a sword up and an angel up to keep Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of life after they've sinned. Who wants to live forever like this? But he will rescue us by bringing us safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul earlier in this chapter said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give To me on that day. And not only to me. But also to all. Who have loved his appearing. And this is a man. Who's facing certain death. And we've got his last will and testament of sorts. He doesn't know if it's going to be today. Tomorrow. Next week. He wants Timothy to bring his parchments. To bring his scriptures. His notes. If Timothy can and can get there quickly. 
But that's who Paul is. So Paul is facing death. If we go back to the PowerPoint, Paul is facing death and it's apparent from these verses as we read through it. And in light of that, we have this book, this letter to Timothy, his child in the faith, who's worked with him in the mission field, who Paul's been with for over a decade, who Paul loves and cares for deeply. And Paul writes Timothy, and the first thing he does after the introductory information is start by reminiscing. He's looking through the photo album book. And you can see it in the first three verses, or I mean in verses three through five, and he, and he kind of shifts there from reminiscing into encouragement. And so this is how Paul's putting his last words down for his son in the faith. Starts with reminiscing. I, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I remember your tears. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm now I'm sure dwells in you as well. That doesn't mean I'm sure in the sense of Paul's hoping. Sometimes for English speakers that would mean that. It means I, I, I have no doubt. I mean, it's there. It's in you as well. And now he shifts into encouragement. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me as prisoner. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We're in the last days. The days after Jesus' resurrection, biblically speaking, are the last days. But the resurrection was not a, a, a new fix-it God had. God knew about it before He made man. God knew the price He would have to pay to redeem humanity before He made humanity. God made that commitment. And it's that power... It's that love which is the way in which we can walk victoriously in the midst of any circumstances of life. And that's where Paul is with this. So Paul has got a, a, a time of reminiscence, a time of encouragement, and then that turns to praise as he lifts up God. And the praise, I can't, I can't turn away from it. The, the praise is there. We saw it. He's manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death. It's manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news. See, Jesus, Paul facing death, 
Jesus knows, I mean, Paul knows, Jesus abolished it. Death implies it's over. But in Jesus, death means it's starting. It's not over. I love C.S. Lewis's illustration in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's walking through the door into eternity, into immortality, into the presence of the living God, into the presence of his children. It's an incredible opportunity. Um, I, my mom's here. Aren't you here, Mom? Hey, Mom. I don't know if I've ever told this to Mom or not. Um, I don't know that I've told many people this, but I've got three minutes. Y'all will allow me a personal story for a moment. Remember, I am morbidly preoccupied with the idea of death, okay? So I dwell on this subject. My mother's mom, Nina, or Grandmother Catherine, as she was called, my grandmother, she passed away four or five years ago. She used to come to this class in her 90s, come to this class faithfully every Sunday. And my grandmother had executed the, the, the papers about do not resuscitate or when do you resuscitate or who gets to pick. Basically, who's going to be in charge of figuring out when grandmother's end is here if medically that's got to be done? So grandmother put me in charge of that. And, and I had to make that decision. Grandmother was in the hospital. Grandmother had told me, the reason I'm putting you in charge is you're as stubborn as I am. She said, I don't want to die. Don't let them turn that machine off if I've got any chance of sticking around. <laughs> Miss Carolyn, uh, that's pretty funny. Uh, okay, don't, don't let them do it. I said, I got it. I got it, grandmother. I got it. You, we, we will. So as grandmother was getting close to dying, in her last day or so, um, she was in ICU, and she had coded three or four different times. And each time they'd brought her back. And so she, she, she died and she was brought back. She died, she was brought back. And, and, and I was up there with her and she couldn't talk and she didn't have much motion. She could squeeze my hand. And I said, Grandmother, I said, at some point, I've got to, to make a decision here. And I said, I know you've told me not to uh, 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 let them uh, just not use all efforts to keep life going. And, and that's what we've been doing. And she squeezed my hand and I looked at her and she communicated without any words with her eyes. And her communication to me was, stop it. It's time to go. And I say, Grandmother, are you looking at me, telling me to stop those efforts and to, to go ahead and let you pass on to glory? And she relaxed with her face. And then I said, because I can have them do it again. And then she gave me that look that said I was in deep trouble. I've known that look all of my life. 
And then I said, you're giving me that look that I'm in trouble. And she kept that look on her face. I said, so I take it from that that I'm not to resuscitate again. And she relaxed again, and she smiled as best as she could and blinked her eyes, yes and no. I mean, yes, up and down. There comes a time where we all face death. And I don't know about those people who've been resuscitated and seen the lights and all of that stuff. I can't talk about that. I haven't experienced it, and I'm a cynic by nature. But I want to tell you something. There was no doubt in my grandmother's mind that she was going to be better on the other side of the door than this side. And there's no doubt in my mind that Paul saw that even though he was further away from that door, perhaps by days, perhaps by hours, perhaps by weeks, than my grandmother. And so Paul, his, his, his encouragement of Timothy, his reminiscing, which turns to encouragement, quickly turns to praise. And then from that praise, we see Paul starting to talk about Timothy. Let me give you some last wisdom. Actions matter. What you do in this life really does make a difference. Hear me. If there's one thing I could do for anybody in this room who's, who's, has any doubt in their mind, I would like to jump up and down on your chest and tell you what you do matters in this world. You cannot stick your hand in a fire and blame the Lord when your hand gets burned. Well, if there was a God, my hand would not be burning. Fool, get your hand out of the fire. You can't blame God for making fire burn. Without it, we'd all be eating sushi. It's an important part of a good meal. So don't put your hand in it. There is a reason God gives us these instructions. It's for our own good and the good of His kingdom and the good of His will. And actions matter. So he tells Timothy, here are some instructions for life. Teach these to other people. Pursue these. Love people. Let them see your love. Put your faith in Jesus. And trust Him with the consequences. Deal with people in kindness. Deal with people in gentleness. Let your faith be known. By the way God has changed who you are. And don't ever say, well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have the gift of gentleness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit grows from the inside out. Okay, I, I'm tell you this with great hesitancy. But the Whole Foods on Luetta has those sumo oranges right now. And they don't have a ton of them. I tend to buy all of them when I find them. So that's why with hesitancy I tell you. They're the ones that peel so easy. They got that knob at the top. They don't have any seeds. They are so sweet and so tart. Oh, they're marvelous. One of God's greatest creations. The sumo, tangelo, orange, whatever. But I want to tell you something. If you buy one unripe, it doesn't mean when you peel it, there's air on the inside. 
You see, those things grow from the inside out. You're always confident. It may not be right, but you open it up. It's still going to have orange on the inside. Because fruit grows from the inside out. The fruit of the Spirit grows from inside you out. God is at work growing you. So if you say, well, I don't have the gift of gentleness, then grow in the Lord and watch Him. And then when one day someone says, you know, you're a gentle person, you can laugh and say, well, actually, God's done that. It didn't come natural. And that's fine. Along with those instructions for life, Paul also gives certain warnings. And he says, you know, in the last days, there are going to be people who are lovers of themselves. In the last days, there are going to be people. And by the way, we're in the last days. Okay? Look at what Paul says in chapter 3. Understand this. In the last days, there'll be times of difficulty. Yeah, Paul, we're in those. He knew that. People will be lovers of self. If there's one thing you could say about Nero, it's that he was a lover of self. But he's not the only one. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy, heartless, unappeasable, just can never be happy, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. These are the ones who creep into households. They capture weak women, burned with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at at a knowledge of truth. Just as Giannis and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. They're men corrupted in mind. They're disqualified regarding the faith. Hey, they're not going to get very far, though. Their folly will be made plain to all, as it was with those two men. And then he's got this magnificent passage. Um, he says, uh, um, you know, follow the scriptures. You've got the scriptures. They're suitable for everything. And then 1 Timothy three sixteen, all scripture <clears throat> is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, profitable for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be the person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. The the, the word man there is not the Greek word just for a man. It's for a person, anthropos. And so, so Paul is saying, you've got Scripture. And a marvelous thing about Scripture is it's God breathed. Scripture, he says, is your reliable source. Scripture is, and God breathed is two Greek words put together. You've got the word theos, which means God. We have theology from that, a Theist is someone who doesn't believe in God. You know, theism or theos is God. And it's put with the Greek word panuo. Panuo means to breathe. So when you put those two words together, you have God breathed, a compound word in the Greek. Now, you can read your Bible in Greek from 
uh, you go to the Septuagint. You can read it from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. You'll never find that word used in the Bible. But it's not because Paul made it up. It was a word that we have used in some other Jewish writings. They're called the pseudepigrapha, but I've put down two different pseudepigraphal books that were contemporary that use the language in a little call-out box in your lesson because it tells us what this word is. This word God-breathed, see, and, and the reason I do this is there are some people who say Scripture is inspired by God. That is also translated inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God. The same way that a song is inspired by a marvelous relationship. No, that's not what this word means. It doesn't mean that, that Scripture is inspired by God and that men were, were sitting around thinking about God and they were motivated to write these Scriptures. No. This word, theopneuo, this, this Greek compound word means the source. It's where it comes from. So I put this call out box for you. And I referenced, for example, the Sibylline Oracles. The Sibylline Oracles are uh, they're, they're multiple books. Uh, they, they, they were written a long time period. But the earliest books generally are seen to be the fifth book is the er three to five books are the earliest ones. In the fifth chapter, you'll see the word used twice. And each time it references God as the source. One are certain streams that flow from God. Another is God is the source of all people in the sense that he's the creator. In the Apocalypse of Abraham, another book that was written around 70 AD. So it's actually written down probably about two or three years after Paul used the word. You'll see the word used. This is a story, a, a, a fiction about Abraham dying. And when he dies, the angels take Abraham and they prepare his body to meet the Lord. And they do it by taking divine ointment. They take ointment that came from God to prepare Abraham's body to meet God. And that's the same word. It's God-breathed. It's, it's, it's sourced from God. And so in that sense, if we go back, Paul says uh, this, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's sourced from God. It is God's gift to us. And as such, it's profitable for us in all these different areas. It's why we come here on Sunday morning for Bible study. It is because Scripture is profitable for us. And so in that sense, Paul then brings this to a close, as we do as well, uh, in some of the words that we had already read about him having already fought the good fight and finished the race. So here are our points for home. Know. Know this. You may not join me on the morbid trail of people who think about it all the time, but there will come a time where we will depart. There will come a time where we will all depart. And I trust in him whom I have believed. And if you have never placed your trust in the Lord Jesus, oh my heavens, that, that, that is, that's, that, that is, that's the ticket. That's, I, I don't believe in the religious system. 
I'm not going to, 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 to spend glory eternity with God because I'm a member of a Southern Baptist church. I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, whom I trust to be my righteousness. And I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he's going to keep that which I've entrusted to him, which he's entrusted to me until the day where I'm standing before God. And then do, because of that, I want one day to be able to say, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I've kept the faith. And so today, I want to fight the good fight. I want to push the race further out. I want to keep the faith. May I bless you in the name of Jesus. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings upon those who are listening. Those here, those listening through the wonders of the internet. And I ask you, or or radio. And I ask you to bless them, Father, with faith in Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, for those believing, I pray a blessing of conviction that they will be convinced of the power that is work at work within them, of, of the security in Jesus Christ. And that we won't dread eternity, but that we will eagerly await your presence. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.